Hi, everyone. Um, let me add my welcome to Trisha's. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And tonight we are going to talk about um, working with others. So this is a great chapter. If you're new to sponsoring or been sponsoring a while, it's great. If you're even just new to program and know nothing about sponsoring and you're on step one, it's still a great chapter. And there's lots of really cool spiritual principles. We'll probably get about halfway through the chapter and finish up on Thursday, but we'll see how it goes. So if you have your book and you want to turn to page 89, and Tricia, could you read the first paragraph for me, please? There's so much material that we're going to do a lot of just the actual reading of the text and then like getting in and dissecting it. Absolutely. So just the first paragraph on 89. Yep. Great. Okay. Working with others. Practical experience shows us that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they are very ill. Okay, so so much could be said even just about this first paragraph. When I first start working with someone, I often have her read this first sentence. Nothing will ensure immunity from drinking or compulsive eating as much as intensive work with other, for us, compulsive eaters. Well, what they're telling me is I can have immunity, right? Like now since COVID, we all know what that word immunity is. It's like, we are protected. We get immunity. Or I think of like law and order, those episodes where a diplomat from a foreign country goes to New York, commits a murder, but the cops can't touch him because he has diplomatic immunity. He's untouchable. This program promises us that we can be untouchable by the illness of compulsive eating. What do we have to do? Work intensively with other compulsive eaters. Well, if someone's brand new, they're going to hear that. They're going to say, great, all I have to do is go out and work intensively with other compulsive eaters. But how do I do it? And that's a good question. Step 12 starts with a promise. It says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to other compulsive eaters. So the order is we work these steps. As a result, we have a spiritual awakening or a spiritual experience. We can't give it to ourselves. It's the natural result. It's like a flower can't make itself grow. But if someone plants a seed and waters it and weeds it, the flower will grow automatically. And so too our souls. They, we have a spiritual experience. What is that? The best way I can describe it is like God coming in and rewiring our hearts so that we become more like him. We become less selfish the way that I know I used to be and become more like him. I'm not there yet, but I'm certainly less selfish than I used to be. Then once we've had that change, we can go out and help other people. And we're excited to. And that keeps us free from binging. So then it tells us, um, carry this message to other compulsive eaters. So I have no right to carry my message in a 12-step fellowship room. Um, I can go out and like 
start something called Janet Anonymous and teach whatever I want. But if I'm in Overeaters Anonymous, I'm supposed to carry this message. And it tells me, remember, they are very ill. That's important. Someone who's struggling with this illness isn't bad. They're sick. I know I've been on the receiving end. And in my younger days, I am ashamed to say the dishing out end of unkindness when someone eats compulsively. I remember I first came to OA when I was a teenager and someone um, and I picked up um, and I remember it was peanut butter at the time I binged on. And my sponsor, not not that she beat me up. She, I think she had her sponsor like come and berate me and say, what, you don't know what peanut butter tastes like? And it, I couldn't help it. I didn't binge because I was a bad person who needed a, you know, um, verbal licking. I was a person who, who was ill, who needed to experience a miracle. Um, and usually what opens us up to a miracle is the love of our fellows. So I would say we, all, we have to be kind to each other. Even if someone's binging every day, me yelling at them, you know, imagine if I say, you're so terrible, you're binging, that makes you such a bad person. And then they say, oh, thanks for yelling at me. Now I'll be able to put the food down. It doesn't work that way. So we have to be kind. And remember, if I'm ever not kind, I'm putting myself on a pedestal thinking I'm better than you. And I am not. I may just be someone who got on the bus a couple of bus stops sooner. That's it. Okay, Trisha, next one, please. Life will take on new meaning. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. You know, I read this recently and it says, we know you will not want to miss it, this great fellowship and helping others. And I said, how do they know what I want? How do they know that I'm not going to want to miss it? You know, they can't read my mind. And then I thought, ah, but they know the way this works, that if I work this program, I am going to be the kind of person who gets joy out of helping others to watch loneliness vanish, both in myself, because I was dreadfully lonely. I could be with a hundred people and feel like I was the only person on the planet that vanishes and to see it vanish in others, to have a fellowship. And they say, this is the bright spot in our lives. And they say, okay, so let's say you're just getting started. What do you do? Now, remember, these were the days before they had a lot of meetings. So they said, go to doctors, ministers, priests, and hospitals. These days it's easy, right? We go to a 12-step meeting. We can generally find people. But there's still some words of advice that I think are helpful to us. Don't start out as an evangelist or reformer. I don't have to keep notches on my belt for how many people I help. And it's actually, ultimately, not my job to help people. Ultimately. My job is to do God's will. And God's will is for me to carry this message and to work with other people. If they recover, wonderful. If they don't, and sometimes, honestly, it's heartbreaking. You start working with someone, you just like 
fall in love, you know, you have a great relationship and, and then they leave. That's okay too. It's sad, but that's okay. My job is to do God's will. And so I don't need to reform anyone. I don't need to convince anyone. Um, but it tells me because of my own drinking, my own eating experience, I'm in a position to be uniquely useful. I think I have the world's best therapist. She's the one who taught me about idols. If any of you have heard me talking about it, it's all from her or most of it's from her. But she does this thing called intuitive eating. And I just say, mm -mm -mm, doesn't work for me. Um, and I want to tell her, like, if you've got hard cases that your intuitive eating thing doesn't work, send them to a 12-step program. Um, we can be uniquely useful. And again, it says, cooperate, never criticize. To be helpful is our only aim. I think that don't criticize really can go for people who are working the 12 steps a different way than we are. There are some people or, um, who say no one should ever eat, uh, let's say, wheat. Um, and then there's some people who say, eh, if you can tolerate wheat, it's fine. And so if someone asks me my opinion on something like that, I say I have no opinion. I have opinion on how the steps need to be worked, right? They need to be worked in order, you know, and all this, but I have no opinion on other people's food plans. I'm not going to criticize it. As long as someone's working the 12 steps, that's fine. So page 90, they say, okay, you've discovered a prospect. And so this may be, you meet someone at a meeting, or, you know, or they take your number and call and they say, can you sponsor me? Um, when I remember my first meeting, I just went and got a sponsor. I didn't really ask her any questions. She didn't ask me any questions. And that's not quite the way the big book says to do it. It says, okay, before you say yes, there's some things to do. And it says, find out all you can about him. I'm on the top of page 90. Don't do what was done to me. It's like, okay. Um, the woman said, okay, I'll be your sponsor. Here's a food plan. Follow it. Call me in the morning. And I think, okay, if I had the power to follow a food plan, I wouldn't need to be here in the first place. I mean, I couldn't articulate that at the time, but that's that's kind of really what's about. We don't just hand someone a food plan and say, call me in the morning. It says, we find out about them. It says, if he does not want to stop drinking, don't waste time trying to persuade him. Now, this is a tricky one because... Um, a person has to be willing to go to any length. So I've gone up to people and said, what are you not willing to do? And often a person will say, I'm not willing to put the food down. And I say, really? Because like you're at an OA meeting. And they say, well, I must not be because I'm still binging. I'm like, ah, so there's a difference between being willing to put the food down and having the power to put the food down. So I usually say, if your fairy godmother would come along and said she could, you know, bop you with a magic wand and remove the food obsession, would you say yes? And usually people say yes. I think one time someone said no. And that per so someone who says no to that is someone who's not willing. They're not ready. They don't want to stop. But if someone says, yes, I want to stop, I just don't know how. I haven't been able to stop. Then we can keep going. And says, what do we do? We find out about his behavior 
his problems, his background, the seriousness of his condition, his religious leanings. I always ask people what their religion is. So I know, you know, what what landmines, what, you know, if they say, oh, I was brought up such and such way, but, you know, it, I had a horrible experience with it. Okay, then I know. Um, or if they say I was brought up, both my parents were atheists and, you know, they railed against the idea of God. Okay, I want to know that because this will help me know how to approach them. And I want to, you know, what their exact problems are, what the, you know, so this, it helps us form a relationship. And they go on and say something that seems a little weird. They say, sometimes it's wise to wait until he goes on a binge. The family may object, but unless he's in a dangerous condition, it's better to risk it. Why? Why is it better to risk it? Because if someone says, yeah, I've been in OA for five years, haven't binged, never worked the steps, you know, yeah, I think I might want to work the steps, but whatever. No. Or if someone thinks they can still do it on their own. No, but usually it's a, I know in my case, it was right after a binge where, um, I just, I couldn't stop just multiple binges. I couldn't stop. And that brought me to the point where I could say, I will do anything you tell me to do. Um, so it says it's better to risk it. And then ask the person if he wants to quit for good. And if he would go to any extreme to do so for good, that means not, you know, so I look good at my college reunion and so the boy who rejected me when I was 20 years old feels bad. No, I want to just for good. I want to be changed for good. Um, and then we say, okay. And they're talking again. This was really before they were meetings, but there's still some principles here. It says never force yourself. So we don't beg. We don't beg our friends or our family members. Um, and even with new sponsees, we're not over anxious. It says, because that might spoil matters. Um, you know, it's not like, okay, come on, let's get, no, there's time. Um, and it tells us page 91, it says, he may be more receptive when depressed, right? So when someone just feels down and out, that's a time. And then it says, we have our conversation with him. I call this the Starbucks conversation. You know, we meet like over a cup of coffee and we talk, general talk. Again, no one likes to feel like a project. So we want to just, hey, you know, show me pictures of your grandkids. What sports do you like to play? What's your favorite TV show? You know, to get an idea about them. And then we start talking about our binging. Like, yeah, I'm here. I used to binge really badly and give some examples and the goal is to have the person say, what did you do to get better, right? That's always our goal. The main thing we want to show them is the mental twist. So when people say, well, I must not want to stop because I'm still binging. It's like, no, it is possible to want to stop, but be unable to because our brains don't work the way that normal people's brains work. And then I might give them an example of the broken bridge, how normally my memory protects me with things like 
cat allergies. If I'm about to go near a cat, my brain will just generate a warning signal, run across the bridge and say, danger, cats will give you an asthma attack. Don't go. But when it came to food, the same, you know, my brain wanting to give me a warning signal, danger, you say you're going to eat one cookie, but you're going to end up eating the whole box. That's happened 38 times before. And the thought tries to get across the bridge to my conscious mind to warn me, but it can't because when it comes to food, the bridge is broken. Just like when it comes to an alcoholic, when he thinks I can have one drink and stop, even though 50 times he hasn't been able to do it. When that memory tries to get across to his brain, can't get across, the bridge is broken. So that means I can never remember strongly enough to get better. You know, sometimes people say, keep the memory green. That's not in the big book. Or you just have to remember harder how bad the binging was. That's not in the big book. We are people whose memory cannot protect us. So I'll go over that in depth with the person and talk about how it is hopeless. It's not like, okay, now that you know your memory doesn't work, you can fix it. Um, once that bridge between the memory and the conscious mind is broken, it's never going to get fixed. So it says we dwell on the hopeless feature of the malady. And, you know, sometimes for years, I mean, I spent my first six and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous binging, not getting one bit better. In fact, getting progressively worse. And people would say, just keep coming. It'll get better. Well, I did just keep coming and it didn't get better. It got worse. I mean, imagine going to like Diabetics Anonymous meeting because you, you just learned your diabetes and everyone's saying, just keep coming, it'll get better. And they read a manual on insulin injection and, you know, people call each other, but no one sits there and tells you, unless you inject this insulin in your arm, you know, multiple times a day, you're not going to get better. So false hope is no good. Um, just keep keep coming and do the 12 steps and you'll get better. That's real hope. And that we can give someone. But um, false hope can be fatal because someone can just be sitting in a chair getting worse and worse and worse because all they do is keep coming. So again, toward the bottom of page 92, it says, continue to talk of alcoholism or compulsive eating as an illness, a fatal malady. Talk about the conditions of body and mind which accompany it. So the body, the physical part of this illness and the mind, the twisted thinking are like accompaniments. They're like side dishes. What's the main dish? What's the main problem? And that is our souls, something in our spirit. Um, chapter five is really clear. Once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. So recovery always, always has to start in the spirit. And it says, okay, yeah, talk about hopelessness. You can do it because you offer a solution. Otherwise, it would just be mean. Like, dude, you've got, you know, a hopeless condition. You're not going to get better. See ya. You know, no, like we have a hopeless condition and I had it, but now I don't. Now I'm free of the obsession. Now I can live a healthy, stable life. And then if we do our jobs well, the person will say, 
what did you do? What do I have to do to get better? And it says, top of 93, let him ask you that question. Tell him exactly what happened to you. Stress the spiritual feature freely. Someone once asked Dr. Bob, one of the founders of this program, you know, I don't said, I don't like the spiritual part of this program. And he said, the whole program's spiritual. It's all spiritual. You know, even, even um, our food plans, I just found out because of kind of a medical condition, medical condition I have, um, I may have to drastically change my food plan drastically. And I don't like it one bit. I don't want to do it. And I just thought, this is a chance for me to to just grow spiritually, to surrender it to God, the physical part, the, you know, physical problem that I'll, I mean, I'll tell you guys what I have. So you're not like all thinking I have cancer or something. Um, my blood sugar seems to have crossed the barrier or is just about to cross into diabetes. And it's like, I'm not overweight. I exercise, I eat really healthy. Um, it's just, you know, genetics, whatever. I, I don't know why, um, but I probably have to drastically change my food plan. And I have surrendered my physical, my blood sugar number is surrendered to God. And when I have my doctor's appointment on January 3rd, I am surrendered to, if he tells me I have to go on this food plan, which I'm like 99% sure he will, that I don't want to do. I am surrendered to doing it and trusting that, um, the by surrendering the physical god will make me healthier and stronger so that i can serve him better um so everything can be made spiritual um so it says we stress the spiritual feature and it says the person doesn't have to agree with my conception of god they can choose any conception provided it makes sense to him i'm going to go out on a limb here and say a doorknob does not make sense um, you know, sometimes you say, well, I once had someone say, Heather Locklear is my higher power. I guess some of you who are younger might not know, but she was this like really pretty actress. Um, and it's like, that makes no sense. You don't even know her. How could she be your higher power? Or even the group, because um, if I'm at my house, how are you, you know, you all may like me, but how are you going to stop me from picking up? Um, you can be a resource that leads me to God, but the spirit, so any conception he likes, provided it makes sense to him. The main thing, and then there's two parts. One, willing to believe in a power greater than himself and power with a capital P, which they tell us on page 46, which is God. But again, God as we understand him. So believe, willing to believe. So a person doesn't need to believe a person just has to be willing to say, maybe there's a God, maybe there's a creator of the universe, um, maybe, and that he lived by spiritual principles. So that means even while I'm not sure that there's a God, I can start living by spiritual principles. Um, Karen M. put together a list of all the spiritual principles in the big book, and they are on the website. Um, someone could post it in the chat. Um, we can start practicing them. So for instance, we can start being honest on day one. We can start doing self-sacrifices for other people on day one. And then, um, 
and then we're on our way. So willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, coupled with practicing the spiritual principles we know, we're on our way. So if you binged five minutes before this meeting and you are now ready to say, I'm willing to believe that maybe there's a God and I'm willing to put spiritual principles to work in my life. I will stop lying. I will make a point of doing something for, for someone every day that requires a sacrifice. Then you never have to binge again. And these are the things that we tell our new sponsees, but that I'm telling all of you here, it is really true. Um, so later on page 93, it's again says, well, what if, you know, he's not an atheist or agnostic. What if he's like way more religious than you are? And it says, um, well, he's got to at least be curious why his convictions haven't worked and why yours have, even if you're not so religious. And then it says he may be an example of the truth that faith alone is insufficient. I mean, a person could believe, have pneumonia and believe in the power of penicillin. Well, if she doesn't take the penicillin, it doesn't matter that she believes penicillin is a wonder drug. Faith alone is insufficient to be vital, to be alive. Faith must be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. Um, generally, sitting in my comfortable heated house to pick up a phone and call someone and say, hi, I'm making an outreach call, how are you, is not a self-sacrifice. By definition, a self-sacrifice means I'm giving up something I want in order to do something for someone else. So let's say it might be, oh, I have like half an hour after work before I have to make dinner and I just want to sit like watch TV for half an hour. And then it's like, no, you know what? My husband just got a new shirt. I'm going to go wash. I'm going to wash that shirt so he could wear it to work tomorrow because he'll probably want to. Or picking up the phone when someone calls and it's like, okay, some here's someone who's going to want to talk and it may take that 30 minutes. We can know it's a, it's a self-sacrifice if we're able to kind of fill in the blank. In order to help someone, I gave up blank. That we have to have given something up. So it says faith has to be accompanied by self-sacrifice and unselfish constructive action. I mean, it may be self-sacrifice for me to just like go outside and put all the rocks and, you know, neat little piles. That's self-sacrifice if I don't like doing stuff like that. But no one would really say it's constructive unless I'm, I don't know, building a retaining wall or something. You know, constructive. We look to be helpful to someone. And, you know, again, page 94, they stress we represent no particular faith or denomination. These are general principles common to most denominations. Um, and then they go ahead. Now, remember, we're not even sponsoring the person yet. This is all kind of the pre-work. And it says, tell them how you did it. You made a self-appraisal. You made your amends and why you're trying to be helpful. And they tell us it's important for the other person to realize that the attempt to pass it on plays a vital part in our own recovery. It says, actually, he may be helping you more than you're helping him. Why is it important that the person knows that? 
And again, nobody likes to feel like a project. Like, oh, you know, she's taking pity on me and coming to work, you know, help me. No one likes to feel like a project. Um, my sponsees help me because they make the big book come alive for me in a way that me reading it myself doesn't do. And it tells us what we do. We tell them we never take money for this. And we just say, I hope that when you recover, you help others, the, you know, the same way you're getting help now for free. And even now, start placing the welfare of other people ahead of your own. You know, take the last seat on the lifeboat on the Titanic. You know, it's like we place the welfare of others first. And it says, don't, no pressure. And we never want to like make someone feel like, so let's say I spend an hour with someone. I always want them to feel that if they would rather work with someone else, it's fine. You know, we don't want someone to feel guilty, like, oh, Janet spent an hour with me, but I'd rather work with someone else. It's like, they can work with someone else. We, we don't have egos invested here. And again, if I've spent an hour with someone, even though they may not respond to me, they may go to someone else or they may go away, it's helped me. Um, and I've been obedient to my creator. It says, but when they go away, um, they should feel like we are friends. My friendship isn't contingent on them wanting to work the program. Okay, so it says a person may say why they can't do it. And it says, don't contradict him. Let him read this book and then see again if that convinces him. And it says, give the person a chance to think it over. Um, page 95 now, never talk down to an alcoholic from any moral or spiritual hilltop. Again, just because we've been through the steps, we are not any better. We just got on the bus a couple stops earlier than the next person. Um, lay out the kit of spiritual tools for his inspection. We lay out the kit of spiritual tools, but again, the person has to pick them up. But spiritual tools, remember, it's all spiritual. And show them how they worked with you. And that's what we can talk about, you know, then with the person, how we did certain things and get specifics. We offer them friendship and fellowship and tell them if they want to get well, we will do anything to help. It's work. We will put in the time. And then again, page 95, it says, if he's not interested in your solution, and then it tells us some reasons why we might have to drop the person. One, if he's not interested in the solution. So if he says, you know what, like I can get better by going to church. I don't need to work 12 steps. That's fine. If he wants someone to act only as a banker for his financial difficulties, I'm really struggling with money. Can you help me? You know, if that's their main goal, mm -mm. or a nurse for their sprees, someone to call every time they binge. It says you may have to drop him until he changes his mind. But notice what it doesn't say here when we drop someone because they pick up. It doesn't say if someone picks up, we drop them. Now, if they want us to be a nurse for their sprees, if all they want to do is complain to us and have us say, they're there, it's okay, try again, uh-uh. But if someone picks up and they mean business and really want to recover, we help them. And on page 120, they're clear that it's possible someone wants to mean business, but picks up. 
you know, they may have just gone down a wrong path and it's our job to help them just get back on the right path. So it says, if someone's sincerely interested and wants to keep going, ask them to read this book in the interval. I mean, this book, the text part is 164 pages. So that's kind of like a, a good indication. Um, nowadays, most people or a lot of people, unless they're brand new, have already read the book. So I personally give them an assignment to do before I agree to sponsor them. I give them something to read and listen to and take notes on and you know write down their thoughts and their questions and then to come call me when they're done. So I, I want you know them to take some action. Again, it says he shouldn't be pushed or prodded. If he is to find God, the desire must come from within. This it doesn't say if he's to get abstinent or get a sponsor, if he's to find God, because ultimately that is the solution to all our problems, our compulsive eating problems and every other problem. It says, he thinks he can do it another way, another spiritual approach, that's fine. We have no monopoly on God. You know, I would never say that no one could get better, you know, in church or by following their religion or something else. I just say, I don't know how to do it that way. This is the only way I know how to get better. So page 96 tells us not to be discouraged if the person um, doesn't respond because sometimes they don't. Um, for years, I went to a meeting and I didn't think the meeting was very good. I called my sponsor, I'm like, I keep going and I'm the only one who's talking about recovery. And she said to me, you keep going, they're keeping you abstinent. So we don't get discouraged. And ultimately the meeting kind of turned. Um, it says, search out someone else and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. So what's the qual quality of someone who's going to be a good sponsee? They're eager to do it. They don't fight. They don't try to negotiate. They're eager to do it. And what makes someone eager and willing? Because we are people who do not like to be told what to do. If they're desperate, desperate because compulsive eating has kicked our butts. And then they tell us, it's a waste of time to keep chasing someone who can't or won't work with us. So I'm responsible to God for using my time well. So just because I like someone, I may feel fondly toward her. If she's not willing to do the work, I can't keep working with her because then I'm depriving someone else who may really want to do this of a spot. Um, and it says who can't or won't. So some people can't because they may be, I don't know, have done, um, I think this applied more for alcoholics that maybe they had a wet brain and they really physically couldn't. But if they won't, or if they just keep fighting it, they say, no, leave them alone. They may soon become convinced he can't recover by himself. Why? because he's going to start binging again. If he's not doing the work, he's a real compulsive eater. And again, what, what I just said, spending too much time on any one situation is to deny another one the opportunity to live and be happy. So um, 
later in the chapter to employers, it says no sponsee should want to be made a favorite. No one should be demanding too much of our time. But, um, and he says, one of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. That means he started working with six people and not one of them got better. And then he says, but if I had, maybe all the ones who came after wouldn't have recovered if I had kept going after those six. Um, he says he would have deprived them of their chance. And what a chance it is, right? A chance to like be free of the food obsession, a chance to like have our hearts rewired so that we care more about other people than we do about ourselves and just a chance to be part of this beautiful fellowship. So I'm gonna stop here tonight and we will pick it up about you are making your second visit. We'll pick it up there on Thursday night. Thanks.